0: G'day and welcome to Radio Notes Where those in music talk life And those in life chat music and more I'm John Merch Let's hear from our feature guest
1: Follow up to an album called Spit Into Somebody's Mouth comes an EP called Foul Water by artist Yi Lin. While the EP launches on the 19th of August 2022 at the Gasometer, the release started to be put together post the 2017 Australian plebiscite on same sex marriage. Yi Lin joined John to talk about the themes of the record, including the effects of the public vote on the new music.
0: Yi Lin, welcome to Radio Notes.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: What was happening in your life in 2017?
2: 2017 was an interesting year for me. I was, um, I was, at the time um, living with my partner Elise, who um, I've now been with for about ten years. I was working uh, my guts out at my day job. I was, I had a really full-on day job. Um, working in uh in public health and um and that was sort of i was there maybe you know nine ten hours a day most days a week and at that time i think in 2017 i was in the process of recording um some of the songs that would go on to being spit into somebody's mouth so yeah i i was it, i was sort of burning the candle at both ends a little bit
0: did you feel that this EP had to be exclusively about that period of time where the album may have lent into other areas? This EP, Foul Water, was very much the focused on
2: 2017? Yeah, I, I do think so. So I started writing the songs for the EP probably in late 2017 through 2018 and in that time I took some time off and – I found myself and I and my brain was kind of blank as to I had just been kind of totally exhausted by recording the first LP and I took some time off from work and everything and my mind was just kind of totally blank and it was a bit of a vacuum for the first time in my life whereas the first LP I felt like I was really kind of experimenting and seeing oh what happens if I follow down this path and think about family or what happens if I think about past relationships and so on and so forth. There was a bit of a vacuum in my mind when I was writing in 2017 and 2018. And the only thing that kind of filled in that vacuum was this sort of indignance and anger and resentment. I don't say that in a way that it was, you know, consuming me and I became like a a bitter husk of a person or anything like that. But in the times that I would give myself to ruminate and to play and to write... Really the thing that came rushing in to fill that vacuum was just this sense of real anger about everything that had occurred um, in the lead-up to the plebiscite and the plebiscite itself. And that took me down a road of thinking um, about a range of other things related to homophobia and biophobia. I didn't go about trying to write like a concept EP or a collection of songs that were specifically about this political event or anything like that, but it's just what... It's just what happened.
0: There is a saying of the mudding of the waters. And here you're talking about foul water. Is that the correlation? Mm -hmm.
2: For me, the correlation was, I felt like in the time leading up to the plebiscite and afterwards, everybody was kind of trying to wash their hands of the process entirely. You know, you have malcolm patting himself on the back and saying i delivered marriage equality for the australian people you had those who were against marriage equality kind of brushing it under carpet pretending that nothing ever happened and certainly pretending that they hadn't done any harm to anybody and we sort of entered into this time where it felt like australia at large wanted to declare themselves kind of post-homophobia now same-sex marriage has happened we're all good as you were we'll start incorporating you into the ads for our major uh, corporate institutions and and we'll all be good right and it felt really like people were trying to, to wash their hands of the whole process but as far as i'm concerned like there is no washing your hands of the process certainly there has been no kind of like clean water to to there's no baptismal font available for um to wash away that kind of thing and the impact that it had on people. So I thought about foul water to me is about like this sort of poisoning of the well, as it were.
0: More than the fact that people in their arguments of the debate that it had to Mm. go through particular process or we can't do it at this stage because we're going to do this. And this is what happened for our overseas listeners, put the Australian public through a months of judgment about those that they worked alongside and for those they worked alongside in your case it sounds like 50 hour weeks needing to explain if you wish to explain who you were and why it was important for you and that's that element of activism which we'll get to a little later as well
1: Mm -hmm.
2: certainly um that, that reliance on process was really interesting to me. I mean, marriage in and of itself is kind of, it's an institution that's about process, right? It's like it's putting a framework on top of a relationship between two people. And so it sort of rendered everybody into these strange kind of political agents where, you know, you have the politicians who are fixated on process as an excuse for not implementing something which is sort of, um, which was ethically robust saying, oh no, it's about process, it's about process backing away. And likewise, kind of, you had individual people. I mean, I I certainly found that people in the queer communities that I'm in and that I'm a part of felt like they had to kind of, yeah, like you said, they had to explain themselves and they had to kind of fit themselves to this rubric of marriage and acceptability and respectability in a really interesting and weird way. During same-sex marriage and um, the plebiscite and, and afterwards, people ask me all the time, you know, are you, are you and your partner going to get married? Are you and your partner going to get married? You know, and you, you can now, you know. Like, we've handed you this gift on a silver platter. And my partner is stridently anti-marriage, has no interest in it, thinks that it's kind of one of the most appalling things <laughs> that you can do to yourself and to each other. And why would you do that to someone you love? Ask them to marry you. My God, is there anything worse? And it's interesting. And, and you know, at that time I found I found myself kind of the people around me who had that kind of you really censoring themselves because they felt like they had to fit into a certain mould of respectability to get this across the line.
0: Yilin, were you an activist before the
2: plebiscite
0: or did this activate the activist in you?
2: I think it kind of actually exhausted the activist out of me more than anything else. So I look, I wouldn't I wouldn't call myself a strident activist or anything like that. I'm I was very involved in community radio in 3CR here in Melbourne, which is probably the most politically active of all of our community radio stations, has a very kind of leftist progressive. Bent to it, and that's been a really sort of fertile ground for me socially and politically and um, and creatively as well. And so I certainly was uh, involved in kind of I guess probably the more radical queer elements of activism, and certainly involved particularly in in kind of the radical queer uh, circles of people of colour in my city. And I have been sort of uh, professionally involved in activism as well. Yeah, but but I, I will say that seeing so much of my community sort of put through the ringer during the plebiscite kind of made me step back a little bit in a way that I'm not particularly proud of. It, it made me, I suppose, focus more internally on my community and, and bolstering the people around me and the people that were important to me rather than kind of going out there and um, shouting um, and... Uh, I guess, the, the capital A activism that we think of.
0: Quite a slog, the plebiscite, getting the nation behind to actually have a view on one topic where I'm sensing some of those other areas of activism you had, you could be proactive in, but in a more, not minor, but a more targeted way and to actually achieve goals on the board to say yes we were able to inform this debate by doing this where the only informing really of the debate at the end of the day was to get people to say yes or no to something that only affected maybe five or ten percent of the population
2: yeah that's right it's interesting isn't it It sort of it became the kind of behemoth that took over the scene entirely you know it wasn't like you could really have conversations among queer activists without talking about same-sex marriage when in fact a lot of people in that scene have been talking about things that many of us would argue are much more urgent than the issue of marriage like transgender suicide rate you know legislative discrimination in other forums racism prison abolition all this sort of stuff has was much sort of that was kind of the bread and butter of what most of us were talking about day day in day out it wasn't like you know any of us were really kind of fixated on the topic of marriage in particular but yeah it kind of swallowed everything up for a little bit
0: this is your quote i wanted to document elements of the queer life that were glossed over can you give us a sense of what some of those elements were and i guess some of those that have raised across the foul water ep
2: part of it um I mean, certainly there was an element of wanting to write a queer kind of revenge fantasy. You know, I was thinking at the time, I think around that time, maybe a a few years prior, I had seen Get Out by Jordan Peele, the fantastic horror movie, which is really incredible. And I thought to myself, and, you know, explores a lot of issues around, around race and about around sort of anti-Black racism in the US in particular. And I was thinking to myself, you know, we have kind of, God knows we've got like queer tragedies all over the place. You can't watch a queer movie without somebody committing suicide or getting murdered or, you know, any of that sort of thing or dying from AIDS or HIV. And we have kind of like uh, the queer comedies and, and the, the sort of um, the token comedic gay characters. But like we, where's that, where's our horror movie? Where's our revenge fantasy? Where is our kind of like picking up the knife and going out, you know, and tearing off. And, and so I really wanted to write some songs from that perspective. and and there's one song in particular, cut it loose, which is the narrator of the song is telling um, is telling the listener like, you're never going to be acceptable. you're never going to please them no matter what you do. This feeling that you have, is never going to go away. So why not burn the town down? Why not, you know, like, wage a war against the straight community and against all of the forces? Stop trying to please them. So there was certainly that element of it. Cast, which is the last song on the EP, and which is one of my favourite songs in the EP, it's really about queer desire. It's about kind of One of the things about the same-sex marriage plebiscite that was so interesting to me was that it was completely devoid of any sex. You know, it was like queer people, all they want to do is go down the aisle together, uh, kiss each other chastely in front of their loved ones and then hold hands and then um, bid each other goodnight with a firm handshake. And then that's it. End scene. Won't you let them have that? And for me, I was just like, Yes, you know, it was, it's a total kind of, um, uh, yeah, this totally weird celibate tape on, on what it means to be a queer person. And so I really wanted to write a song about queer desire and yeah, and I'm really glad that I did.
0: It's as if that marriage debate was very much about the marriage years of where she's just at home, you get married and you go back to the wife and you might have some kids in the first few years.
2: Yeah, it was, it was really kind of returning to this concept of a nuclear family. Yeah, and, absolute
0: picket fence kind of feel.
2: Yeah, real picket fence kind of feel. And and in addition to everything else, it's very kind of ethnically, culturally specific idea, right? Like, I grew up in a family where my dad lived overseas for most of my childhood. And my mom and her mother raised me and we grew up in a household with my cousin also lived in our house along with my sister and I. And so like our house was like an intergenerational kind of all to one side, lopsided family unit. But it was so interesting to me that when we were looking at the same sex marriage debate, you know, you just kept seeing like two adults sensibly raising a child, maybe a dog. If the idea of two adults raising a child together puts you off too much. It was very strange.
0: Another element that seemed to be glossed over or as part of the EP is that of bitterness. Can you explain what kind of bitterness? Are we talking sort of dark chocolate or the kind where secrets are kept between the pages of a dirty book?
2: Oh, interesting. Look, I would say more bitter than dark chocolate. Probably secrets hmm, I reckon it's Between the Pages of a book, maybe a little black book, maybe a little black book of enemies, that kind of bit. Yeah, that's I what I meant. Yeah. That's, that's definitely the time.
0: Because you were talking about revenge and I was wondering, with the album Spit Into Somebody's Mouth, there was a lot of gothic-type themes throughout that very record. What inspires you to play in that pool of water?
2: Oh, very interesting question. God, I'm a goth from way back. I was a gothy little kid, and I loved Joy Division and Sisters of Mercy and that kind of thing. And I loved watching kind of, I loved spooky stuff. One thing I love about the gothic kind of aesthetic, including the literary aesthetic, is that there's something really camp about it. You know, it's about sort of pushing something to its like to its extreme, um, to the point where there's it's almost a little bit funny. You know, talking about like you know blood and gore and cannibalism and stuff as a metaphor for a failed relationship in your early 20s which everybody has to me is like there's something quite funny about that it's about sort of taking yourself so seriously that it kind of goes full circle and you're sort of laughing at yourself a little bit but I think also I mean you can tell me whether this is true or not, but I think I'm a pretty kind of upbeat and affable person in in conversation and in my social
0: life. We've had happy goths, so I
2: would I would identify as a happy goth, and I think that probably music for me is a way to explore some of the not so happy bits. But I, I like I like I like blood and guts and stuff, and I like. I like the kind of visceral stuff. I think that what I never want to do musically is to try to play it cool. There's nothing chill about me. I've never been chill one time in my entire life. Like, I like feel things. I I really want to always stop myself from censoring myself when I'm writing or from trying to deliver people what I think they'll want to hear. Because like, as far as I'm concerned, then you're in the customer service business. You're not in the music or art making business. So part of that is about always kind of trying to get, get into it up to my elbows, you know, like really take things apart and yeah, look at the gory stuff.
0: Well, that also brings us back to that storyline of revenge fantasies and actually allowing that Mm. music to be that playground for those feelings, because clearly those feelings don't belong in your everyday, but they are very much part of you.
2: Totally. It's very difficult to have a conversation with your co-workers at the water cooler about how you take everything that they have done very, very personally, and you will never forgive them for something that they said three years ago offhand, a gay joke they made or whatever, or that you believe that this country is overwhelmingly populated by homophobes, like all queerphobes, transphobes, racists, you know, it's very hard to You can't kind of live your life having those conversations day in, day out, or you won't make a living, and it's emotionally unsustainable to be kind of having that kind of conflict with people all the time. So the music is an opportunity for me to kind of exercise
1: some of those feelings. Radio Notes, released first as podcast, can also be heard on radio worldwide.
0: We're currently in conversation with Yilin. The EP is called Foul Water, and it is based upon the 2017 marriage plebiscite. And we're talking about activism in the first part of our conversation. As a musician, how do you think you get your activism across? Oh,
2: I don't know if I successfully do as a musician, to be honest with you. I kind of see them as very separate things. For me, music is about expressing my own personal feelings. It's not about achieving some kind of change of mind for the listener. You know, I kind of don't care too much whether the listener listens to this and has a change of heart and suddenly decides to talk to their child about why they've been wrong and all those dinner table conversations in the past. Activism is very different to that. For me, when it comes to activism or advocacy or whatever you want to call it, I'd much rather be useful than be right. I am very, very willing to kind of do whatever it takes in a conversation in that setting to convince somebody of what I think is the more, the the ethically strong standpoint. I can be a little sycophantic, I can be a little, I can concede certain points that I don't really believe. I can do whatever it takes to get that person across the line I feel very willing to do that. I, feel, I mean, you know, to a point, I'm not gonna compromise all of my ethics and say like, oh, actually you're right. Like racism is totally acceptable. Now, what do you think about drug law reform? You know, I'm not saying that, but certainly I'd, like I said, I'd much rather be useful than I'd rather be right. But with music, that's sort of an opportunity for me to say, this is what I would really be saying. This is the closest expression to my own position that I can give somebody without kind of the end goal of, of bringing about political change.
0: Cause that's what I was wondering whether or not you can be more honest through the music because it's, Hey, it's what I say where the activism is more of a collective idea of what something is about.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I have no doubt that if I was having a conversation with somebody in 2017, And I said, hey, you know, one of the amazing things about queer people is that they express their emotions quite freely through sex. Not everybody, some people. That's something that's encouraged in some queer communities. And, you know, I think that the act of BDSM can be a very tender and wonderful intimate connection between two queer people. It's not something that I'm going to say to somebody in that time, but it is something that I can say through my music and it's something that I can write about and feel like that's a very true expression of my beliefs and um, of my truth, and I, I don't have to worry about the political consequences.
0: Which means music is a safer space than that of on the street or at a political level.
2: Yes, it's it's safer in some respects because I've created that kind of safe space for myself, but it's very, very vulnerable. It mm. feels terrifying the entire time. I've given myself permission to write freely But as soon as I play it to the first person or have a conversation about it or get up on stage and see people that I don't know or somebody from my day jobs in the crowd, I think like, oh, my God, what have I done? Why have I let somebody in to see my dark, sicko little brain? And so on the page and in my room, it's a safer space, but it becomes terrifying when it starts to interact with the public.
0: The answer will be soon, Yilin. They paid for it. They paid to know. And you'll be doing such a thing on August the 19th at the Gasometer. How are you feeling right now about that very thing that we've just spoken about?
2: I'm feeling more okay than I thought I would be. You know, I was really, really terrified when the first LP Spit Into Somebody's Mouth came out. That was really my first kind of foray into recorded music. And it was completely solo. I mean, I produced with my wonderful producer and mentor, Neil Kelly, and and he certainly creates like a really lovely space to work with. But in terms of performing it, it was just me on stage and, you know, all of all of the parts all other than the bass, all over that record are entirely just me on my own. This year I've started playing with a band, which has been really lovely. It's just been so nice. I really um, underestimated how nice it would be to have other people up on the stage with me who are just just as motivated as I am for something to go right. You know, that we're all on the same side. And it, that's just been the most amazing, lovely thing. And I think that that's made a huge difference.
0: Let's talk about the recorded work and who's on that, who produced it.
2: So it's a pretty tight kind of family affair. Um, there still weren't a huge number of players on it. I worked again with Neil, who taught me how to play guitar.
0: Firstly, what's the story behind that? Was it a drunken Saturday night at some seedy dive bar, or how did it happen? No,
2: something much, much less glamorous Oh, no! A hundred times less glamorous than that. I looked him up on Google, and I found him, and I sent him an email. <laughs> that was a, That's the story. Oh. I mean, so I grew up a classical musician, a, a flautist, and I had great aspirations of marching off to Austria and playing in orchestras or becoming a conductor or becoming an avant-garde composer through my sort of childhood and teen years. And that plan kind of went awry in my teens. One nervous breakdown and that kind of put an end to that. So after I finished high school, I kind of was like, I kind of spent a couple of years in the wilderness not playing any music at all and not really thinking of myself as a musician at all. And then I decided I'd really like to learn how to play the guitar because you can play them on your own and you don't need to, you can just take a guitar wherever you need to take one. And and I really liked that. And so I found Neil and he was relatively close to where I lived and I sent him an email and he replied saying, what kind of thing do you want to, do you want to learn and what kind of, you know, what kind of thing do you like? Do you want to play like folk and country? Like, do you like Gillian Welsh? And I love Gillian Welsh. And so that was when I was like, ding, 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 I'm definitely going to go pay this guy a visit. And, yeah, and that began kind of bog standard weekly guitar lessons for a great number of years. And it took him a really long time to convince me to start writing and an even longer time to convince me to start um. Uh, performing. And he co-owns a studio in Melbourne called Run Stop Sound, has a beautiful space. And he said, why don't you come down and just see what it's like in the studio, play a few covers if that's what you want to do. Let's go from there. And I did. And it was a real thrill. And it was really lovely. And I kept doing it. So Neil and I are kind of like joined at the hip musically. I say we have many, many, many disagreements, but we kind of share enough of a history together. And he also has a background in classical guitar and in modern sort of contemporary capital C composition as well. Um, so we have enough of an overlap and enough of a shared history and a shared vocabulary that we can work really well together creatively. Yes.
0: Welsh's songwriting, it has inspired your own songwriting in some way.
2: Yeah, and Dave Rolms as well. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, firstly, I guess the most obvious connection is her kind of enthusiasm for gothic country, right, for the kind of morbid country tale of, of a, a woman who's attacked by a man and she spits his throat with a broken bottle and that kind of thing. She has that real reverence for the traditional and a way of really drawing out the kind of um, the dangerous in that. And that also comes through a lot in the music that they play, that Gillian and, and David Rawlings play together have this wonderful way, I don't know if anybody's listened to them, they'll know what I mean, but this wonderful way of putting together very, very simple, very traditional chord sequences together. And then Dave Rawlings will play these solos over the top that are all so weird and so outside of the realm of country. They're all sort of dissonances and tense and jazz chords and wonderful things so again that's that kind of taking the traditional and perverting it slightly just enough to really kind of hook its fingers into your brain and i I love that about their music i love it yeah so very much
0: lyrically as well because of that gore because of that darker side uh, appeals to um maybe a younger yi lin goth at the time and through to now
2: Totally, yeah. Like if you had asked me when I was 15 whether I would really love country music, I'd be like, what do you mean? I'm a, you know, I'm a suburban goth. I'm a suburban Asian goth. (laughs) I've never listened to country music in my life. Um, But it is, you know, there's something something really to it, that sort of exploration of dark stuff. And, you know, and and I think that, that a lot of country musicians will say, will be the first to admit that it does, again, kind of push into that territory of camp. You know, there's something about country music that can push into the camp really, really easily. And sort of that fine line between something that's really dark and something that's really ridiculous is walked all the time by Gillian Welsh, and I think that's really wonderful.
0: Let's go back to the production team. Neil mm. and...
2: Francesca Chong played drums on this, and Fran sort of drummed for every great Melbourne artist of our generation. You know, she really is like, she, she gets around heaps and is, is really very beloved in, in the Melbourne music scene and she's my cousin and she's sort of where she's nine months younger than me or something similar to that and when we were growing up she used to always say like you know I'm going to be a rock musician and I used to always say I'm going to be a classical musician and it's really it's been such a delight playing with her um, because Much like Neil, we have enough of a shared history that we have a shared kind of vocabulary, but enough distance between us that we can introduce new ideas to one another. And she can tell me like, that is a terrible idea. Why the hell would we do that? And I'd be like, just try it, you know, and then, you know, concede defeat afterwards. Um, So she played drums on that and just brought an incredible kind of energy to the record then we had um, Lauren Malavi, who plays clarinets on the record, which is a really special part of the sound of the EP mm. to me. And um, and she again was such a champion. You know, Neil and I spent a long time pouring over various clarinet arrangements and stuff and she knocked it out of the park. Such a special sound to me.
0: And someone who was a flautist, you would have understood the importance of the clarinet and that symmetry that the two instruments and in this case, your voice and the clarinet can have.
2: Totally, totally right. Like they often say that that the flute is the closest to the human voice, particularly the regular C flute that people play and the and the female voice or the kind of alto and soprano voice. And so clarinets are kind of a perfect marriage to that because they don't take up the same space that a flute might and that my voice does, But they provide that kind of that warmth, that really rich timbre to things. Um, And they just sound so good when they're slightly dissonant. That kind of wonderful warm vibration that like reeded woodwinds have that you don't get with flutes is just brilliant. And to me, I'm always boggled that people choose strings over clarinet. I'm like, reeded woodwinds are right here. They're so good. And so many people, you know, if you want to fill out a space, there's nothing better than a clarinet and a bass clarinet in particular, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. So yeah, I, I'm very passionate. It's a hill that i that reeded woodwinds are very much, um, they're slept on in music.
0: Who else have we got yeah. on that line up there? So we're up to clarinet.
2: Everything else is me. Um, Neil played bass, but otherwise the guitars and the voices and keys, the little bits of keys here and there, those are me. And so Neil did the sound engineering. Michael Hughes, who co-runs Run Stop Sound, did the mastering. The loveliest person in the world to work with as well. Not that I understand a single thing about mastering.
1: But he's very generous
2: and lets me sit in the back on the couch and watch him do what he does. And, yeah, it's always a great experience.
0: It might seem trivial. What's your favourite tea?
2: Mm, not trivial at all. So different tea for different occasion, I would say. In the studio, normally green of some description because if I need to sing, then, like, a black is, like, way too much for the voice, dries everything out. But I would say my standard black, what I've got in the mug next to me now, is um, Twining's English Breakfast, Can't Stand Lipton. Twining's English Breakfast, Yorkshire tea, also very good for a black tea. But, yeah, there's a different tea for every occasion.
0: Black or do you mind there is a little bit of milk in there?
2: So I take it black, but I do do something which is a bit sicko, which is when Sugar? I want a milky tea, almost. So I grew up I grew up on... on Malaysian Teh, I guess you would call it, which is with condensed milk. So I do kind of like the sweetness. I Okay, this is like really letting you into the, this is a deep dark thing of the process of how I Mm -hmm. kind of wake myself up. Two bags of twinings, English breakfast, extra strong. Brewed, really, really black, only filling the mug up halfway with water. So it's like it's tar made of tea at that point. And then soy milk up to the top, the vitamin D enriched Slightly sweet soy milk, not any fancy kind of baristas use. And then, and then I microwave it so that it warms back up. It's not good. I'm not proud of it. But that is what I drink most mornings.
0: I have at the top of my page that quote of queer rage. We spoke a little bit about that. But I am pondering whether or not the process of making this EP has quelled or strengthened or what has it done for your inner queer rage?
2: Mm, good question. Has it quelled it? No, I'm still really mad all the time. I think it's strengthened it, to be honest with you. I think that being able to write things out and make them make sense to me has really kind of strengthened strengthened my resolve. Of course, now we're, we're in a completely different context than we were in 2017 um, culturally, but all of that still remains, I think. And I think that... Um, For me, I'll often write something and be like, oh, yeah, I 75% believe in that. That rings pretty true to me. And then I'll play a lot of times and sometimes even after I've recorded it and listened to it a million times in the mastering sessions or played it live, a few years later, I'll come back to it and think like, oh, that's truer than I realized. Or I'll find myself returning to an, an issue or a conflict in my life and I'll be like, "Oh yeah, didn't I write a lyric about that? Maybe there's something to learn from that. Maybe I was onto something." And in that way it kind of I kind of in constant conversation with songs that I've written in the musical process well after it's kind of been recorded and and written, which is a really lovely thing to have, I think. Um so yes, I still feel as angry as ever. I and maybe more angry too because the political context has changed such that it seems like the 2017 plebiscite was a really long time ago, but it really wasn't. And that act of of cultural erasure, I think, is something that makes me particularly annoyed.
0: Do you find any joy in the fact that those that did want to get married in the queer community actually were able to? Does that bring some sense of balance to that rage is, is where I'm coming from with that question?
2: Absol- absolutely, absolutely. I- feel a lot of joy about that I I feel a lot of joy about that but rather than balancing out the rage I think it sort of sharpens it a little bit more I think that actually what it does is it reminds me that joy was so easy to come by all we needed was to give people the opportunity to marry and we denied them that for so long so I think that actually it makes me more angry rather than less
0: because this has been done, we can now do this, this, and this, hopefully maybe even a little bit more simply?
2: I I hope so. I hope so. But, um, you know, we seem to have moved from an interest in material and legislative change to an interest in cultural change. It almost felt like the the biggest kind of legislative hurdle people feel has been crossed with same-sex marriage and therefore now it's all about cultural change it's all about you know making sure we use the right pronouns and making sure that we use inclusive language and making sure that we have the right number of the right kind of people on tv and that is all great and i think that that is so important and that goes hand in hand with other kinds of change that's so so valuable but i do think that in some ways we have kind of lost sight of some of the real uh material injustices that impact people
0: Let's talk about the first single, which is Just The Feed, said to be a response to the exhaustion and burnout caused by the activism to get these things that we've just spoken about done. It's not a short song. I was exhausted God, by the no, end of no, it. If you want to talk about exhaustion and burnout? Have a listen to this song called Just The Feed. Joking. <laughs> Joking.
2: I know they're all bloody long, aren't they? I remember playing Just to Feed for my partner the first time and it kind of, there's a lull after, you know, about halfway through. And she yeah. goes, that was brilliant. And I was like, zip it. There's a lot more coming.
0: I recently received numerous emails letting me know that Kate Bush is running up the hill, has a radio editor. I'm there going, I think the whole point is that you should just play the whole thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really believe that. And, you know, before we spoke about Joanna Newsom and, and like, God, talk about a template for a long song. I feel like all of mine are positively Spartan compared to her sort of 10-minute long orchestral mammoth works.
0: Someone who has worked in and around the health fields, someone who's been directly impacted by things like the 2017 plebiscite, what are those things that people can do for themselves to help during those times, of exhaustion and burnout? Because clearly you've been through it You've released a fantastic EP from it.
2: I would say that one of the things that burnout loves is isolation. I think that when you're so fixated on a single thing, it can be really hard to get perspective about what else there is in your life. And the stakes become so high in the thing that you're involved in, whether that's work or whether that's political cause or you know, planning a big event for your family, whatever it is, you can become so fixated on that single thing that you exclude other things from your life. And so the stakes of that thing are kind of artificially raised and, you know, every failure becomes crippling. Every new step that you take become really dogged by anxiety. So I would really encourage people to take the time to find pleasure in other things in their life. And that can be really, really hard. You can feel like nothing is as urgent as this one thing I'm working on. But I would really encourage people to do that. And the other thing I guess to remember is that it's never only just about you. Nothing in history has ever succeeded or failed on the back of a single person. It's because there are many, many people involved. And the more that you keep those people in the loop with you, the more you can sort of say, look, I need to take a step back. I need to have a break. I need to only be doing this a few days a week. I need to only be engaging on these particular topics. So making sure that you're not isolated is really, really important.
0: Yi Lin, thanks
1: very much for joining Radio Notes.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
1: Yi Lin, Foul Water EP Out Now. Official launch at the Gasometer upstairs Friday, the nineteenth of August, with guests Sandy Shu and Leo. Find Yilin's music online at yi-lynn at bandcamp.com.
0: Next time we catch up with broadcaster Melody Horrell. Here's her elevator pitch on her new book.
2: The book is about my remarkable relationship with the solitary wild dolphin called Jock, who lived in Adelaide's Port River, and how that relationship really taught me a lot about myself and taught me to heal. He and the other Port River dolphins really taught me a lot about myself, taught me a lot about trust. For ages I've been wanting to write this book and I finally got it finished last year after finding out that the Port River Dolphins were in a bit of trouble and I needed to do something about it. So that's what really prompted me to finish it. The book is 2 Not only is it about the amazing Port River Dolphins and Jock in particular, but it's also about domestic violence and coming through that, offering some hope.
0: That's Melody Hurrell, our feature guest, next time... Thanks very much to Yi-Lin for being our feature guest this time.
1: RadioNotesPodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Murch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia.